And I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. We're looking at Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. So Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. And while you're turning there, I will, um, I'll be honest with you guys. It's, it's always a bit exciting and challenging to prepare to preach on Easter. It's always both challenging and, and exciting. And, and part of that is because of, of the dynamics. When we, have, we have extra services. There are, there, there are extra people there are, there are people who, uh, who I don't know, I look out and I, and I see you, and it's both exciting and it's challenging. Um, and because I know that in, in, in a room this size, really any Sunday, but especially on Easter, that I know that there is a wide variety of people who are all here together. You know, there, there, there are many in this sanctuary, no doubt, who have been Christians for a very long time, for a very long time. Others are brand new Christians. And perhaps even you know, you're still fumbling around your Bible. Okay, where is Luke? Okay, I'm trying to find that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And there are others who, if you're honest, and I hope you can be honest, that you really don't know what's in this book. You really haven't read enough of it to even know what you think about Christ. What you think about his word, what you think about the church. And then even others, I'm sure, are here, and you would say, Richard, you know, I'm, I'm not a Christian, and if I'm honest, I, I, never, uh, serious, I never plan to seriously consider following Christ. And so knowing that this mix of people will be here was what makes this exciting and challenging. And that's one of the reasons why we're going to look at this parable in Luke chapter 18. This, this parable is known as the, the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It, it's among the, the best known of Jesus' parables. Okay, it's right there with and perhaps just below uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son. But it is a well-known parable, and, and, and if you've been around church a little bit, or at least a little bit, as we begin to look at it, you'll go, oh, okay, yeah, I've heard this one before. Even though it's well known, I do fear that it's misunderstood, and that it's often misunderstood for two reasons. First, in this parable, Jesus tells a story about two different men who go into the temple at the same time to pray, and then we actually hear what they pray. But this parable is not about prayer. It's not about prayer. It's about the, the heart's of these two men and what they believe about God and what they believe about themselves. And, and, and Luke makes this very clear at the very outset of the parable. The second misunderstanding of this parable is that we tend to think that it's primarily or only meant for other people. Richard, you're right. I like this parable and I'm glad they're here to hear it. They could, they could benefit from this. As, as one, one old pastor, Kent Hughes, puts it, we have heard the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector so often that it has become to us like a comfortable old slipper that other people wear. However, if we're honest, and let's be honest, this parable you know, fits our feet too. But it doesn't fit us like an old comfortable slipper. It actually pinches a bit. 
And so therefore, as I, as I read this passage to us, remember, it's not really about prayer. And remember, this is not only something for someone else to hear. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. So we're going to look at this, this parable, Pharisee and the tax collector under three headings. We'll see the contrast between these two different men. We'll look at the content of their prayers. And they're going to focus on the cry for mercy. So the contrast between the two men, and it's stark, the content of their prayers, which is very different, and they're going to look at this cry for mercy, which is a much more complex than, um, than you might think, than meets the eye just reading it, those, those seven words in our English translation. There's a lot there. Okay, so first, the contrast between the men. However, even before we look at the two men, we are told the point of this parable. I mean, remember... This parable tells us about two men and their prayers, but we know that this prayer, this parable, is not really about prayer. Like, look with me at Luke 18, verse 9. It says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. See, Luke tells us why Jesus told this parable. You know, parables tend to have a singular theme or singular point, and Luke tells us what the theme or what the point is. That this parable is really about what it means to be righteous. What it means to be declared righteous by God. What it means to be declared justified by God. Now, I know that we don't use the words righteous, righteousness, justified, justification in our everyday life. I know that. But these are perfectly fine words, biblical words, helpful words. And so let me try to offer a definition of what I mean by justification, since that's what this parable is about, and that's how it applies and connects here Easter morning. And this definition I'm going to offer comes from our, 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 our Westminster Confession of Faith. As a, as a pres faithful, Bible-believing Presbyterian church, we have the Westminster Standards, and we have two different catechisms, the larger catechism and the shorter catechism. And the shorter catechism is 107, 107 brief but yet deep and profound questions and answers. 
that are very helpful when you come to words like justification. And so the 33rd question asks, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Put another way, justification is God's legal declaration that our sins are forgiven. They've been paid for, been washed away, removed from us as far as the east is from the west, and that Christ's righteousness is now ours, imputed to us, that we are clothed in it as if we're clothed in robes of righteousness. This is what justification means. And throughout the centuries, um, pastors and theologians have have emphasized the importance of justification, especially since the, the Protestant Reformation, that justification has been referred to as the chief doctrine from which all others flow, or the main hinge on which Christianity turns. And it's been referred to as the pillar of Christianity. And I say all this because that's what this parable is about. This parable is about righteousness, justification, salvation, atonement, forgiveness, grace. Okay, but look again at verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You see, Jesus told this story because it can be easy for some of us to be quite certain that in and of ourselves, we're righteous. That we're righteous. Not not that any of us think we're perfect, okay? My guess is that not a single person in this sanctuary would dare to try to convince me that you're perfect. And And if I've missed someone, I'll be up front after the benediction. Just bring somebody who knows you. Just bring somebody who knows you, and we can talk about this. Right? I don't think any of us who would believe that we're perfect. But Jesus tells this parable because so many of us honestly think, because we're self-deceived, that we're just not that bad. That many of us think, Okay, well, I, Richard, I do all of these good things, and they begin to stack up these nice, kind, generous, sweet things, thoughtful things that I do. And of course, they're bad things too, but this list is a lot greater than this list. And whenever I compare my list to her list or to his list, you know, Richard, I, I'm not doing that bad. I mean, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like her. I'm not like him. I'm not like those people. You see, Jesus told this parable because many people are so confident in their own self-righteousness compared to other people, not compared to to the perfect and holy God who's given us the standard of righteousness, which is revealed in his word. But people are so confident in their own self-righteousness that they think they don't really need God's mercy and grace at all. You see, our self-righteousness can be that dangerous because it can be that deceptive. However, the Bible tells us just the opposite. The Bible tells us, on the one hand, there's not one of us in this sanctuary who's too far gone. There's not one of us who's a lost cause. But at the same time, the Bible makes it very plain, there's not one of us who is too good to need God's grace. 
And that's what this passage is about. And that's why it's perfect for Easter. You see, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Christ, then I'm so glad that you're here. And, and if we understand this passage correctly, it's going to help you better understand the whole Bible. It's going to better help you better understand what the Bible teaches about salvation and about righteousness and about grace and about forgiveness. It's going to help you better understand who Jesus is and why his sinless life his righteous life and his death on the cross and his Easter resurrection and his ascension back to, to heaven, to God the Father's right hand some 40 days after Easter matters so much. And if you're here and you've been following Christ for some time, then if we understand this text, it's going to challenge us and it's going to encourage us as we look at our own hearts and our own lives as we seek to follow Christ wholeheartedly. So let's look at these two men. Look at Luke 18, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. So in the first century, that, that twice a day, in the morning and the afternoon, there would be a, a sacrificial offering made in the temple. And after, after that offering, the worshipers who were in attendance could offer up their prayers to God. And so that's, what, that's why the two men are there, either in the morning or there in the afternoon, but they're there for that, for that sacrificial offering, and then they're going to offer their prayers. Okay, look, look at verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, whenever you listen to this, you may be thinking, okay, so Jesus, a Pharisee, and a tax collector go into the temple, and you think it's the beginning of a joke. But when the people heard Jesus tell this parable, they couldn't believe their ears. This is shocking. This is scandalous. Because there, there, there were no two people more different in the first century than a Pharisee and a tax collector. They were so different. And, and so it's important that we don't misunderstand this. You see, if, if, if you've spent you know, a decent amount of time uh, at a church and looking at the Bible, then, then you, may, you may hear that word Pharisee and you immediately think, ah, that's the bad guy. That's the hypocrite. That's who the Pharisees are. They're the hypocrites. They, they're the ones who want Jesus dead. They're the hypocrites. They look nice on the outside, but, but, but really bad on the inside. These are hypocrites. These are the bad people. But that's not at all what Jesus wants us thinking about at the outset of this parable. See, here's what I mean. The Pharisees were the most highly regarded of the various religious groups within Judaism. They were the most honored among their contemporaries. You see, the, the other people in the temple that day would have, would have surely viewed the Pharisee as a worthy man, a pious man, who worked so hard to keep the law of God. The, the text doesn't say this in this parable, but, but it stands to the reason that, that people would have been excited there was a Pharisee in the temple that day. Because there were only about 3,000 of them at any given time, and so people would have you know, murmured to themselves, I can't believe we came on a day when there's the Pharisee. I hope we get to hear him pray because surely God listens to that man's prayer. Now the man's going to stand up and he's going to pray. And it stands for the reason that even if he wouldn't, would not have volunteered that, that he would have possibly been asked by somebody to stand up and pray. You know, to put it in our terms today, the Pharisee would have been viewed as a leader in the community. You would have been honored to have him over at your house for Easter lunch. 
You would be glad to have him as a neighbor. You would want him coaching your son's baseball team. You know, as, as one of my favorite Old Testament scholars uh, preached in a sermon on this text, he actually titled that sermon on this text, on Luke 18, 9 to 14, he titled it, not the Pharisee and the tax collector, but he titled it, the Presbyterian and the tax collector. But he's letting, letting us, making that very clear. So there's this Pharisee. And Jesus tells this parable in such a way that the shocking contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector is unmistakable. Okay, so let's think about the tax collector. Nobody liked them. They were commissioned by the Romans to collect taxes, and they made their living by what I'll call a cost-plus system. The Romans set this one level, we need tax collector, Mr. Tax Collector, we need this much money from you for taxes, but you are free to collect as much as you want. And however much you collect above this, you get to keep. So take as much as you want. And they did. And they were hated. They were extortioners. They were thieves, liars. You know, the occupation of tax collector is mentioned throughout the Gospels in association with the following types of people. Pagans, sinners, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even prostitutes. See, the society would have viewed the second man in Jesus' parable as a complete and utter moral failure. If everybody was excited because a Pharisee showed up to the temple to pray, everybody would have felt just the opposite about the tax collector. He's the kind of guy to where if you see him coming down the street, you walk to the other side to get away from him. Excluded from uh, life in and around the local synagogue. And I, and I know with uh, taxes being due tomorrow, we all understand this today, right? Not, not a stretch. So when Jesus spoke of the two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector, going to the temple to pray, it would have been harder to imagine a greater contrast. That Jesus is talking about a paragon of society and a parasite of society. And these two men go into the temple to pray. Okay, now let's think about the content of their prayers. First, looking at the Pharisee's prayer. Look with me at verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, he stands off by himself, and that's not necessarily wrong, except we see why he's doing it. That he says, I want to be separate from those people, those defiled, unwashed, unclean people over there. You know, I'm so much better than they are. God, I'm thankful that I'm not like all of these other people. And the Pharisee reasons in his own mind and heart that, he, that he's justified to think highly of himself. You know, by the way, I'm not an extortioner or unjust like this tax collector over here. I'm an honest man. I'm fair. I'm just in my dealings with others. You know, I'm, I'm not an adulterer. I'm a faithful and loving husband. I'm a good man. And no doubt he was. He, goes, he is not just a good man, I mean, an exemplary man. I mean, look what we see in verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know, God's law in the Old Testament called for fasting one day a year on the annual day of atonement. However, 
The Pharisees, as a group, who, they like to build rules around God's rules. Okay, you know you're messing up whenever you begin to build rules around God's rules. But that's what they did. And so they decided not just to fast the one day a year, but they were going to fast two days before and two days after the three main uh, Jewish feasts of the year. But look at what this Pharisee does. He fasts twice a week, every week. And this man also gave a tithe of all that he received, which was also more than what God's law required, because the biblical tithe only applied to certain things, certain produce. But this man was so devout, so disciplined, that he gave away above and beyond. You know, if, if the Pharisee would have had a, a gold sticker chart, you remember those from elementary school? A gold sticker chart for moral and religious performance, his is full. He's running out of room. He's got way more than everybody else. He certainly has way more than this tax collector. But listen again to his prayer. I'm going to read to you again verse 11 and 12. And listen for every time he says, I. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This man's prayer begins with God, but he's not really praying to God. He's not really thanking God, praising God. He's praising himself. He's patting himself on the back. And there's no petition or prayer request in this man's prayer. You know why? Because he trusts in himself. He trusts in his own self-sufficiency. I can handle all of this. And there's no confession of sin. Not because he thinks he's perfect, but because, you know, he does all of these good things. And he does so many more good things than what everybody else does. And yeah, he does some bad things, but doesn't do as many as they do. So compared to them, he's doing fine, right? Why would he be worried about confessing? This man is deluded by his own sense of self-righteousness. And yet, the Pharisee is not the man who leaves the temple and returns home justified. The Pharisee is not the one who leaves the temple and returns home forgiven, accepted, in a right and reconciled relationship with his God. Why not? Well, for all of the Pharisees' self-assessed, self-graded, gold-star religious performance, and for being so much better than all the other sinners in the temple that day, the Pharisee is not sinlessly perfect, because none of us are. The problem is that the Pharisee is just busy comparing himself to other men. I'm not like them. And he's failed to think rightly about God and think rightly about God's standard. You see, the Pharisee trusted in his own righteousness. And what Romans chapter 3 tells us is that none of us are righteous. No, not one. And the Pharisee's prayer in the temple of all places, after a sacrificial offering had been made for sin, proves that sadly this man did not have a relationship with the God who spoke the law that the Pharisee had devoted his entire life to obeying. And how do I know this? Well, as one old theologian put it, John Calvin, he said, true knowledge of God and the true knowledge of ourselves always go together. True knowledge of God and true knowledge of ourselves always go together. We can never really have one without the other. When we truly know the God of the Bible, then we know that he is absolutely, utterly, holy, and perfect. And anyone who knows 
the one true God knows that they are not. That we fail to measure up to God's perfect, righteous standard. That anyone who truly knows God, truly knows themselves and knows that, 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 that we have not perfectly loved God in every way, every day. That anyone who truly knows God knows that we have not, we have not loved our neighbor perfectly in every way, every day. Okay, we have not even loved our families, okay, every day, in every way. You see, throughout the Bible, anytime people have a real encounter with the one true living God, they then see their sin for what it really is, and they're undone. They're undone. They're not proud of their record and how they're doing compared to other people. They're undone because of their knowledge of God, which reveals this true knowledge of themselves. I mean, think about Adam and Eve in the garden, hiding in their guilt and shame behind the fig leaves. Think about the prophet Isaiah when he has a vision of the Lord God seated on a throne, high and exalted. Isaiah's response there in Isaiah 6 is not, gosh, I can't believe that I get to have this vision. I guess I'm God's favorite prophet. I get to see this. Now, what, what he says in Isaiah 6, 5 Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. They're undone. This true knowledge of God gives them a true knowledge of themselves. In the New Testament, think about whenever Jesus first called Peter to follow him as a disciple. Jesus went fishing with him and gave instructions about where to cast the nets, and when Peter saw the miraculous catch of fish, uh, to the point to where the nets were literally breaking, ripping apart. Peter doesn't say, gosh, I guess Jesus just loves, loves, loves me, loves us the best. What Peter says in Luke 5, 8, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, this is what happens when an imperfect sinner meets the one true God. And this is how we know that this Pharisee had missed God completely. Because he cannot see his sin for what it is. As Charles Spurgeon put it in, one, in a title of one of his sermons, the Pharisee thought he was too good to be saved. Now before we move on, we need to make sure we're not putting this comfortable slipper on someone else's foot. When am I like the Pharisee? You know, when, when are you like the Pharisee? It's when we compare ourselves to others and not to God's perfect standard, which is revealed in his word. But we compare ourselves to other people and then we congratulate ourselves for being better than they are, more moral than they are, or at least giving the appearance to everybody else, to the watching world, that we're more put together than they are. So don't let this parable be like a comfortable old slipper that other people wear. Okay, that's the, that's the Pharisee's prayer. Now let's look at the tax collector's prayer. It's one of the shortest prayers in the Bible. It's only seven words in our English translation, only six words in, in the Greek text, but it's an incredibly important and profound prayer. So look with me at Luke 18, verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off, okay, like the Pharisee, but the tax collector standing far off for a different reason. Right? He feels unworthy to be there. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Right? The Pharisee looked down on everyone else. The tax collector could only look down at the ground. And he beat his breast. 
He beat his breath, which is a rare sign of being deeply distraught, deeply disturbed. There's only one other time in the whole Bible when someone beats their breast like this. It's in Luke 23. And it's people who are in the crowd watching Jesus die on the cross. And they're that disturbed, they're that distressed. That's how deeply distressed the tax collector is there in the temple, that he's beating his breast, as, as one pastor puts it, in a sense, he's marking the source of his sin, his own heart. And he prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or literally, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The original Greek text uses the definite article because as far as the tax collector is concerned, he's the only sinner that mattered. As, as the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You see, the tax collector's knowledge of the one true God led him to see his own sin for what it really was. And he, unlike the Pharisee, was undone. And he cries out for mercy. He cries out for mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so this is our third heading. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at this cry, this short little prayer. But there's a lot here, okay? I'm going to tell you, we're going to do a lot of work in a short amount of time but you can do it, okay? The, the first two services, they struggled. But you guys, no, I'm just kidding. But you, you guys, I'm telling you, we're going to do, do a little bit of Greek work. We're going we're to look at the Old Testament. I'm, and then we're going to come back. We're going to tie this to Easter. It's worth it. So the cry for God's mercy. Look at verse 13. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, most of the time, whenever we find the word mercy in our New Testament translations, it's the Greek word Elaleo, Elaleo, and that's, that's a perfectly good Greek word for mercy, for compassion, for sympathy, for pity. And we see this word used by a blind beggar crying out to Jesus later in Luke 18. In Luke 18, verse 38, the blind beggar cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Elaleo, have compassion on me. Pity me. Be sympathetic towards me. But if you look back at our text in Luke 18, verse 13, God be merciful to me, a sinner, that's not the same Greek word for mercy. That word translated be merciful is the word halaskomai. Halaskomai is a very rare word in our Greek New Testament. And halaskomai literally means make atonement for me. It means more than have pity on me, have compassion on me, feel sorry for me, make atonement for me. It means the tax collector was not simply asking God to be compassionate towards him or sympathetic towards him. He's not asking for God to let him off the hook. He's not asking for God to turn a blind eye to his sin, to overlook them. He's not asking for God to, to grade on a curve and say, well, boys will be boys and girls will be girls and you know, can you just sweep underneath the rug this one time? No, he's not asking God to lower the perfect standard for righteousness. That halaskomai means to atone for sin by means of a blood sacrifice. The tax collector is clearly confessing his sin and his need for atoning sacrifice for those sins. Now, halaskomai is a very rare New Testament word. 
But the noun form, hilasterion, is actually very common in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. You see, hilasterion is translated in our English Old Testaments in many places as mercy seat. Now, do you know what the mercy seat was? Inside of the most holy place in the temple, there was the Ark of the Covenant. This, this box, this wooden box that was about a yard long, yard long, and it contained the stone tablets of God's law that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, and the lid on the box is called the mercy seat. The lid, the mercy seat was made of pure gold, and it had on each end angels with outstretched wings, almost meeting over the center of the mercy seat. And God's people were to imagine that God dwelled symbolically between those wings. And, and on, one, on the one hand, this was a picture of judgment because, think about it, what did God see whenever he looked down from between the wings of the angels? Down at the mercy seat, he saw the law, which his people had broken, which we have all broken in our rebellion against him. And in, and in rebelling against God in our sin, we've broken not just God's law, we've broken our relationship with him. Okay, but on the other hand, it was called the mercy seat. So why is it called the mercy seat? Well, one day a year on the day of atonement, the high priest would sprinkle the blood from an animal killed moments before in the courtyard of the temple on the mercy seat. And the slain animal was a substitute that died in the place of the sinful people. Then the blood-sprinkled mercy seat meant that whenever God looked down from between the outstretched wings of the angels, he saw not the law that we've broken, but that God saw the blood of the atoning sacrifice that had taken the punishment the people deserved. So sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat, therefore, was a way to show that the atoning sacrifice had come between God and his sinful people. Accomplishing two things, two things expressed in two technical theological terms. Okay, I told you we're going to do some work here. These words, though, they're unusual words, but they're not hard to understand. The two words are expiation and propitiation. Expiation refers to the covering of sin. Because of the blood sacrifice, the sinful people had their sin covered. Their guilt was removed. Their iniquity was fully pardoned. As David prays in Psalm 32, 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And once the blood of the atoning sacrifice had been sprinkled on the mercy seat, the penalty for sin had been paid for, and no further guilt remained. The sins of God's people were expiated. Now, the other word is propitiation, which refers to the turning away of God's wrath. And this explains what the atoning blood sacrifice accomplished with respect to God. You see, God's wrath is not a violent, out-of-control emotion. God's wrath is not a temper tantrum. God's wrath is not an imperfection in his character. In fact, if God was unmoved, unmoved about our, our sin, wickedness, evil, injustice, that would not be an improvement on God's character. That's not what a good and loving, perfect God, how he would respond to sin. You see, God's wrath towards sin is God's righteous, just, holy indignation, his opposition, his personal determination to punish sin. As theologian John Stott put it, God's wrath is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil. 
in all its forms and manifestations. It is his personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. And so the priests sprinkled blood on the mercy seat to show that God's justice was satisfied, that his wrath was propitiated, and that God was now able to look upon the sinner, look upon his people with favor. To put it all together, when the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the mercy seat, the sinner was protected from the wrath of God and forgiven, not because God was turning a blind eye, but because his sins were covered, paid for. And that's exactly what the tax collector prays for in Luke 18, 13. Look again at that verse. He's quite literally saying, God, be mercy seated to me, the sinner. He asked God to make atonement for his sin, to cover his guilt, to save him from eternal judgment that he deserved. Okay, so, 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 so Richard, okay, but why this Old Testament survey? What does this have to do with us today? Everything. This is what's so wonderful about Easter. It's what's so wonderful about everything from Good Friday to Easter. You see, I told you earlier that halaskomai was a very rare Greek verb in the New Testament. The only other place it shows up outside of this Luke 18 uh, tax collector's prayer is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Here's what it says. Therefore, Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, halaskomai, for the sins of the people. Don't you see? Don't you see this is what it means? Whenever you hear John 3.16 earlier in the service, this is what we're talking about. This is why the good news of John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life, this is why it's good news. This is why it's good news whenever we talk about Jesus died on the cross for our sins. This is what's explaining what his life and his death and his resurrection accomplished. I mean, don't you see the mercy seat in the Old Testament temple and the prayer of the tax collector are pointing us today to the true and better Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And his name is Jesus. That's what Hebrews 2.17 tells us. Jesus became the atoning sacrifice for our sins by offering the offering of his blood on Calvary's cross. As Pastor Phil Riken puts it, his death is our substitute. His cross is our mercy seat. And the blood that sprinkled there, that he sprinkled there, is our salvation. Whenever we say that Jesus died for our sins, what do we mean? Whenever we say that Jesus died for our sins, we mean that his sacrificial death ultimately accomplished once and for all what the blood of the mercy seat pointed to. Expiation and propitiation. Jesus' death was an expiation, a removal of our sins. Our sins were imputed, transferred to Christ. He died in our place, and our sins were punished there on the cross. No further penalty for our sins remained. Our sins are covered, paid for. And Jesus' death was the sacrifice to turn away God's wrath, propitiation. Now that word propitiation shows up a few times in the New Testament. 
I mentioned that halaskomai, the be mercy seated to me verb, is very rare, but there are three verses that describe Jesus' death on the cross with the noun form of that verb, and it's always translated propitiation. See, in Romans 3, verse 23 to 25, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4, 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, on Easter Sunday, and on every Sunday, we are to remember that if we are in Christ, if you are in Christ Jesus, then his blood has covered you. It's taken away your guilt. It's turned away God's wrath. That you really are known by God the Father. You really are loved. You're truly forgiven. You are accepted. You are adopted. And it's not based on what you have done. It's the point of the 